Since everybody's been in here, I'll just do a brief review of Hebrews, just a quick contextual reminder, because it's always good, because we get going, and I'm fairly certain that most of you by this point could do the uh, review uh, by now, but I will just uh, go over real quickly that Hebrews was written to a group of believers of faith community made up of three subgroups. The first group was all in. They had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and they were uh, struggling because they were getting persecuted both from Romans and from Jewish brothers who were upset that they had left the sacrificial system. So they were experiencing persecution and struggling. But they were all in. They were true believers. But there was a second group that was only intellectually bought in much like a lot of people in America, just to be honest with you and candid with you. There's a lot of people in churches that believe that, you know, let's say uh, Bob Mowdy here. Bob is a true believer. He's born again. He's, he's all in with Jesus. Well, I'm intellectually there. I, I understand the facts. Jesus went to the cross. I believe that in my head like I believe George Washington was president. But it's never impacted my life because I've never yielded my heart, bowed my heart to Jesus as King. For whatever reason, whether I was just taught that Jesus was my Savior and never taught about His Lordship, never taught that He was, maybe I've only just received Him as Savior. In fact, I've heard people say that. First you receive Jesus as Savior, then He becomes your King. You cannot receive Jesus as Savior and reject Him as King. You can't. The Holy Spirit won't allow you to do that. Now, you may not understand all of His Lordship. You may not understand every aspect of His authority. And you may struggle with that authority as He matures you. But you cannot reject His Lordship and receive His Saviorhood. Because He doesn't save you just to give you a ticket on a train to heaven. He saves you to deploy you as a witness of the one true living God. And what kind of witness are you if you don't live under His Lordship? You're a terrible witness. Why would He let you go represent Him if you live like you represent the other team? Because there's only two, kings in the, or two teams in the kingdom. There's the God team and the Satan team. That's it. There's no third team. There's God's team and there's Satan's team. And so you either represent one in the way you live or you represent the other. Now that's convicting to me to think about. And we don't like talking like that in churches because it makes people uncomfortable. We want churches to be filled. We want them to hear the message. Because the message becomes the, the, the message becomes the message instead of Jesus being the message. And so... This writer is writing to this group of people and he's saying, be all in. Don't be one of these people that are only intellectually bought in. Come on in. The water's fine. Be all in with Jesus. You people were given the history. All the people of faith that preceded you were people that were all in. All the great names that you would have known that we covered the last few weeks in Hebrews 11. So he, he tells them, be all in. And there's a third group that's still trying to figure it out. So the writer writes this to them in about 60 to 70 A.D. And in chapter 1, he starts off, Christ is supreme. And he goes 1 through chapter 10, 
unfolding that not only is Christ supreme, but He gives them four warnings that we've covered. The fifth one is in chapter 12. But the first four warnings are in chapter 2 where He says, don't drift from the message. Keep coming back. Chapter 3, don't harden your heart. Be all in. Be soft-hearted toward God. Don't be like the children of Israel who, what was their great sin in the wilderness? The hard heart. What was it? They refused to believe that God was with them. That they, yeah, they refused to believe that God was able. Every time the situation got out of control, Jeff, instead of having a faith in the one true living God, they had fear that He wouldn't come through. Do you ever struggle with that? It's one thing to struggle with it, with doubt, legitimate doubt. It's another thing to have a real desire to want to go away from that God and just go back to the pagan idols. And so, he said, don't, don't harden your heart. And then he gave the third warning in chapter 5 and 6. But the third warning came after he told them, Jesus Christ is the high priest. He is the great high priest. And they go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. He's not from the tribe of Levi. And so he mentions this name, Melchizedek. Then he gives them the third warning in 5 and 6 where he says, don't waver. Don't waver back and forth. Listen, it's all laid out for you. Be all in with Jesus. Be all in with Him. And then in chapter 7, he, he goes into who Melchizedek is. He's a king and a priest. We covered that. And then chapter 8, 9, he talks about how the Old Covenant was only a picture of what was to come. It was a primer to get ready for the college book. It was, it was looking forward. It was a forbearance of sin instead of the eradication of the guilt of sin that Jesus would bring. And so then in chapter 10, he says, because Jesus is priest and king, because Jesus has done all this for us, he says, draw near to God, hold fast your confession of faith, and he says, consider how to stimulate one another to good works. Basically, he says, you focus on this part, draw near to God, hold fast that confession that he's there, and then this part will be lived out. Stimulating one another to good works. He said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I talked to a lady out in Houston who hadn't met since March with her, anybody from her body of believers. She hadn't been in a group. Even though it's open, even though she's not really that scared, they just got into listening to podcasts. So now they sit at home and they just listen to podcasts. And that's exactly what's happening. See, it was never about just the information. It's about the assembling of each other for encouragement. But we have made it in our country about receiving the information. She listens to four different podcasts. She gets plenty of teaching and instruction, but she's not getting the encouragement, not getting the accountability, not getting the modeling, it's only the instruction. And, and, and the writer Hebrews says, no, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. Come together. Don't, he's saying don't let fear keep you from doing it. That's what's keeping them from doing it. Come together, he says. And then he goes into chapter 11. And for the last three weeks, we've go, been going through that. And we've seen, and early on he says, this is faith, the conviction of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. That's what he says it is in, in, in verse 1. But then he starts with Abel and he starts unfolding these people 
Because faith is demonstrated in the life of people. That's why he's wanting them to grasp this because he's wanting them to go out and put faith on display to the world around them instead of displaying fear. Man, this has really, really wiped out the Christian witness in the last six months. I've seen more Christians fearful in the last six months than I've ever seen them in my lifetime. I've heard more conversations that were more uh, dominated by fear talk than faith talk. And he's saying to them, listen, look at Abel. He starts off by using Abel as an example of the author of our faith. It starts with God and what God prescribes for us in relating to Him. Abel brings the right sacrifice. Cain didn't. Then it goes to Enoch to illustrate even further the motivation for our faith, which is to know God, not just know about Him. And then it goes to Noah. This is a guy who put that faith on display to the world around us, that he did right no matter what. People were laughing at him. They were taunting him. But he still did the right thing and he built the boat. That was faith that caused him to do that. And then he goes into Abraham. And in Abraham, we saw a man who was called, like we're called. A man who was tested. We're tested. A man who's seen God's power displayed. I hope you've seen God's power displayed in your life. I've seen it displayed over and over in my life. And then a a guy who hopefully is called part of the family of God. See, that's the purpose. In, In 11.16, he says... That God is not ashamed to be called their God. And now we know Him as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I hope He's also known as the God of Jeff, the God of Bob, the God of Brad, the God of Doug. He's my God because I'm part of His family. And then we looked at the life of Moses. Here's another guy. Puts it on display. He rejects the royal family. To be part of God's family. He rejects the pleasures for God's purity. He rejects the wealth for God's perspective on life. And ultimately he said, I'm going to be obedient to God no matter what. And that's what he did. And so the writer takes us through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And then last week we saw him go into Joshua, Judges, and uh, First and Second Samuel. And basically, took us through people who lived out faith in their life. He did Joshua, Rahab, Gideon, and Barak, Jephthah, and, and all these people, Samson. All these men were flawed men, but they were faithful men. You can be flawed and faithful. They were. And David and Samuel. And, as, and you know, when you just take David and Bathsheba out, Pull that out of his life and put it over here. There were still other things in his life that he messed up. He did a census. He didn't handle Absalom the way he should have. He, he, he messed up a lot. But here's the thing about David. He was faithful to God in the sense that every time it was brought up, he would come back to God and say, man, I'm sorry. Go read the Psalms. Read what he says about how sin impacted in Psalm 37. Psalm 38. Read, read those psalms and go back and see how David expresses what sin does to a, a body. Because God was training him for the race of faith that he was in the whole time. And so he finishes up by going all the way through the prophets. We looked at Daniel. We looked at 
you know, uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. We looked at uh, Elijah and Elisha. So he takes them all the way through the whole old Scripture to get them to chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, in other words, because of all this that you have just heard, now, now do this. And that's what we're looking at today. And as we look at this today, I want to ask you some questions. First, we're going to look at this really... Uh, This today is about the race of faith. The race of faith starts when you're born again, and it doesn't end until you your body's put in a casket. Right. That's the race of faith. And so, as we're in this race of faith, God calls us to run our race according to first of all His plan, second of all His purpose, and third of all His pattern. And we're only looking at the first four verses. One, two, three, and four. And he, he wants us to run our race of faith according to His plan, His purpose, and His pattern. Anybody in here ever run a marathon? Lee, you're the only one. How many have you run? Uh, one. One. Okay, but okay, so you've run you've run races, but a marathon, specifically a marathon, twenty six miles, twenty six point two to be exact. So did you just wing that? Did you just say, hey, I'm going to run a, a marathon and just go run it? No. You planned for it, right? So many guys want to wing the Christian life, and and when Paul talks about the Christian life and the writer to the Hebrews and they talk about it being a race, it is. Longer than a marathon. And yet we want to wing it. We don't have a plan. We just try to wing it. Oh, okay, I'm born again now. I just go to church for an hour every week and that's my, that's my planning. That's what I do. How much time did you put in preparing for that marathon? Months and months. Yeah. You trained. That's what we're supposed to do. So here's some questions before we read the text. How are we running our race of faith? You and me. How, if, if we had to step back and say, because I know you, as you prepare for a marathon, you're going, okay, man, I need to work because I'm, I'm not feeling it. I'm hitting mile nine and I'm dying here. And, and, and every marathoner knows if you've ever trained for any long race, you know there come places within that race that you, if you talk to marathon runners, they know you hit barriers at certain points and you've got to push through those barriers. Well, that comes through training. It doesn't come by you just saying, I'm going to sheer do it. You have to train to do that. So how are you running? Here's another question. Why are you running? Why are you running this race of faith? That's an important question for us. Are you doing it for your wife? Are you doing it for your kids? Are you doing it for your parents? Are you doing it for God? You better believe God is God. Yeah, yeah, you better believe it. I mean, why are you running the race of faith? That's an important question. Are you running it like a sprint or like a marathon? Or are you running it like a sign-up no-show? A lot of people sign up and they don't even show up for the race. Where's your focus? 
Where's our focus when we're running? You have to have focus points, don't you? These, this writer is, you know, and Paul too, when he uses these race analogies, it's really good. So let's read the text and we're going to come back and look at each one of these. He calls us to run a race according to his plan, his purpose, and his pattern. Starting in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 4. Okay? Thank you for that. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. May God bless the reading of His Word. You know, God calls us to run this race of faith and to run our race with a long-term perspective. That's the difference between a marathon and, a, and even a 400-meter run. 400-meter run. I used to could run a 400 meters in 53 seconds. That's a pretty good time for a big guy. But I guarantee you that that wouldn't last very long after 400 meters because I've given it all in, in 50, you know, in that 53 seconds. But marathon times are what? Two, three, four hours. And, and so it requires a different pace, doesn't it? And what, what you see a lot of times is people in the Christian life, they start off and man, they're all in and they're quick, man, they're doing everything. They're telling everybody about Jesus. And guess what? They've sprinted for 50 seconds for the first 40 meters, and they're like, okay. And they still got 25.3 quarters of a mile left to go. The Christian life is a faith race marathon. It's not jogging. Jogging is not running, guys. I mean, when I see guys, some guys say, I'm going for a run, and I look at them. They're running a 13-minute mile. That's not running, okay? That's not running. Running is you're, you're going as quick as you can go at that pace you're going to go. But when you jog, most time when people jog, they, there's no point, no aim to it. They don't, they're not even running for a finish line. When I used to run in the Marine Corps, and, and really up until three or four years ago before I had my hip replaced, I used to run and I set a course and I knew where there was a finish line every time I ran. I would always have a finish line. And without fail, I bet 98 or 99% of the time, when I hit the last 100 yards, I sprinted. Almost without fail for as long as I can remember. I was just, that's the way I was built. And it used to drive my son up the wall because we'd be jogging and I'd go out there and I'd always sprint and then make him have to sprint. And people didn't like it sometimes when they did that because like, why are you sprinting? Like, because we're at the finish line. we got to get there. Long-term perspective. God calls us to run our race according to His plan. It's a race. It's not a jog. 
And he says something interesting here. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You know, I grew up hearing this message taught that we're in a stadium. Basically, we're running down on a track and there's a stadium full of God's witnesses encouraging, cheering us on. That's what I heard. But that's really not what this is talking about. They're not spectators. They're not spectators. They're examples. They're models. And, and people, I've even read very respected people who talk about how they're sitting up there cheering us on. The people in heaven are not watching you and me, I can tell you right now. There is absolutely no indication anywhere in Scripture that anybody is looking down on us from heaven right now, except for God the Father. Now that may be disconcerting for some of us. Because I hear all the time, oh, I know that he's watching over me. Or I know she's watching over me. No. In heaven, when we are with the Father, it says there's going to be no tears. We are in the presence of God, right? So could you imagine being in the presence of God? No sin, no pain, no suffering, and having to look down on America in 2020? Would that evoke tears? You bet it would. Because all the people that don't get it, would, it, would, it would tear you up. You would be distracted from the praise of the Most High God. So it doesn't matter what people have said, and a lot of times they say that to try to comfort themselves, but people, when they die, they either go in the presence of God or they go away from His presence into eternal punishment. Or at least temporary until they have the great white throne. And, and so it's a race. And the, so we have these witnesses. You know what the word witnesses is there? It's marturos. Marturos. M-A-R-T-U-R-O-S is the phonetic of the Greek. And it, it's the word we get martyr from. It's, we get the word martyr, somebody who lays their life down. So martyrs are witnesses of the one true living God. And so all these people are witnesses to us and yet, I hear people still to this day who call themselves Christians, even leading Bible studies, even pastors of churches who say either, one, they don't read the Old Testament, or two, we don't need the Old Testament. So let me read you what Paul says to the Roman church in Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. What's he talking about there? Is that the Old Testament? Yeah, that's all they had then when he wrote this letter. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. You want to know how to get hope when you're discouraged? You go to God's Word and you look at the lives of people who have lived out a faith and their faith race running according to God's plan. Not their plan. The, the Scriptures are just full of examples of what happens when God's people try to run their race according to their plan. And it doesn't work out very well for them. It doesn't work out. Many people don't read the Old Testament. It's written for that. So the best way to develop and train your faith is what? To go to the Old Testament and read. 
God's word. And I would say in the New Testament as well. And so the word race, interestingly enough, the Greek of that is agona. A-G-O-N-A. Agona, which we get the word agony from. That's the race. Contest. It's translated, some translations, contest, race, but it's it is agony, suffering. We get the word suffering from that, or agony. And that's why I crack up that lady that I, I was talking to you about, that I was listening to the other day. She was telling me about the podcast, and she lists this guy, he's great, solid, this guy's solid, this guy's solid. Then she throws in a name, and I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. How do you listen to these three and then this guy? There's a prosperity guy. And she goes, what's that? I said, prosperity preaching? I said, let me tell you. I said, I bet you've never heard him say there's any demands on your life. I've ne- I bet you've never heard him talk about suffering that we're called to. Because prosperity preachers don't preach that. They focus on the amount of faith you have and the fact that you've got to put faith in faith. They don't focus on the object of our faith. I mean, this guy she mentioned is way out there. He's worse than Joel Osteen, and I think Joel's terrible in that regard. He's positive in a lot of ways, but not the preaching of the gospel, not the preaching of God's word. I mean, he's just not. It's terrible. She, that's, and she's getting fed that. So how is that going to impact your race? That's going to be bad for her training. And then it says... Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us closely. Let us run with endurance. That word endurance means to remain under. Remain under the struggle. Remain under the struggle. So God's plan is that our race is most likely going to include suffering and a struggle. If we're following Him. And so He tells us that when we run our race, He uses, goes back to the running analogy, what they used to do is they used to put weights on their bodies and they would train with weights on their bodies, but race day, the weights came off. So He tells them, take off the weights. Every weight. Put off the useless. That's useless. The weight is useless for... The, the race day. Now, for you and me, useless is something that can otherwise be good, but it's not helpful to us spiritually. It's not helpful to the goal of running the faith race. Could be a habit, could be pleasure, could be a place or a person that can distract us from our focus on the race and where we're supposed to be. It's not that it's terrible, but it's bad. But I think specifically in this case here, who he's writing to and the struggles they had, he's dealing with legalism. He's dealing with a going back to the ritualism of the Jewish sacrifice system. And he's saying, put that off. Don't conflate that with Jesus. Don't add that in. And see, we do the same thing today. Most of us aren't adding temple worship to our Jesus experience, but we might, let's say we grew up Catholic, or let's say we grew up uh, Mormon, or let's say we grew up Seventh-day Adventist, or even Baptist. Doesn't matter. 
We believe those traditions make God more accepting of us sometimes. Got to burn a candle. You know? Or got to hear from Mary. Got to hear from, or got to pray to a saint. Whatever it is, we believe those things make God more accepting of us. And we get bowed into that. If we don't touch that, we don't drink that, we don't eat that, whatever it is. And the truth is, if you go to uh, uh, Colossians chapter 2, Paul addresses that in chapter 2. I don't, I don't have time to go into it. But he says, those of you who say don't taste, don't touch, don't eat, or these are special days, you've got to celebrate these special feasts, don't listen to them, he says. That's just bringing legalism and traditionalism in. And that's what he, I think he's talking about when he says throw off the weight. But then he says, you need to get rid of the sin. Throw off the sin. So he differentiates between the weight, that traditional stuff, I think, and the sin itself. You know what I believe the sin is? Unbelief. It's unbelief. It's sensuality, jealousy, lying. These are all sins. But do you know when I say sensuality, lying, um, whatever, um, uh, apathy, as a husband being mean to your wife, all those are sins. All those practically demonstrate one thing, that you don't believe at that moment in the one true living God. The moment you sin, practically, you are displaying unbelief in the one true living God. That's hard. He talks about how it entangles us, it surrounds us. Unbelief in a hard heart. Sin is always acting in unbelief. That's what it is. Whenever we sin. And it's not, you know what, we're not, we're not consciously going, okay, I'm going to disobey God on this. But you know what, we're like, when I lived on the river here years ago, we had a, a possum and on our property and I trapped him. And I tried to trap him with ham and that didn't work. He didn't go for the ham. But I took some honey and I put it on a cookie and I put it in a cage and he went for that. And I remember, I'll never forget the very first time I trapped an animal like that. He was so mad. He was trying to get out of that cage. He had dug into the ground. I mean, he was mad, but he could not get out. That's the picture right there of how it entangles you. It gets you. You get sucked into it, and in disobedience to the Most High God, you go against God's commands because you choose to do something that you know God doesn't want you to do because you're not trusting Him, you're fearful, whatever it is. And it entangles you. He says, get rid of that stuff. Listen to what he says in Colossians. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, real quick. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Wow. How can 40% of pastors in America be struggling with a pornography addiction when it says that right there in the Word of God? How? And I know the physiological answers. I know, but at some point, they made a conscious decision to say, I know this is what God's Word says, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. And so what we've done today is we've excused a lot of addiction because we call it an illness instead of what it is, sin. And we, we, we excuse it. And he says, 
In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have to put off the old self and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Listen, it applies to me too. You know what helps us with this? is accountability. Okay, yesterday I'm in the, the Delta Airport Lounge in Atlanta. And I'm sitting there, and Lori and I have gone back to the back. We take our mask off. We're eating. And there's little signs everywhere. Keep your mask on unless you're eating. So, our masks are off, and I keep my tea right there. And I, told, and I just said, I'm just going to keep my tea right here. I don't want to put my mask on because I'm an anti-mask guy. I'm sorry. I just don't like the mask. And so I, I said, I'm just going to sit right here. There's nobody around us. I'm not putting a mask on. So about five minutes later, the Delta guy comes walking through and he's looking around and he doesn't see my tea right there. He just sees me without my mask. And so I, he comes over and says, uh, sir, uh, you need to put your mask on. I said, I'm drinking tea. He goes, well, you're not actively drinking tea, so you need to put your mask on. And I look around and there's 20 other people where we are just sitting apart who aren't masked. And, and I'm like, are you going to go tell them to? I mean, I was mad. I got mad. And I did it in my marine voice too. It just came out. I didn't mean for it to come out, but I was just irritated about it. And so he goes, yes, sir, I am. And he went and he told every one of them to. And, and so he walks away and Lori goes, Doug, listen. She goes, you, she, no, 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 yeah, well, this was after, but she goes, Doug, you were wearing a SWAT shirt. She goes, is that really the way you think Jesus would have wanted you to talk to him? I'm going, wow. You know what? She was right. She was absolutely right. And I was immediately brought under conviction by the Holy Spirit. So I got up. I said, Lord, first of all, I said, Lord, I'm really sorry. Forgive me. And I told Lori I was sorry. And then I walked over to his desk where he was. And I said, hey, were you the guy walking around? He said, yeah. I said, I just want to apologize and tell you I'm really sorry for the way I talked to you over there. That was uncalled for. I said, that's not who I am. I said, I I was irritated, and there's no excuse for the way I treated you. You were just doing your job. And he said, well, we just want to make everybody safe. And I said, I understand that. And I said, but the way I talked to you was inexcusable, and I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. And he said, oh, we're good, we're good, we're good. And I walked away, and as I walked away, he said, sir, can I tell you something? I said, sure. Turn around, and he said, thank you. And as I walked away, he, this is what he saw on my back. He didn't see this when I was sitting down. And he didn't know what this is, probably. He didn't even really check to notice. But I knew what it was. We know who we are. And God calls us to run the race of faith and to put off anything that entangles or anything that weighs us down. Because we run according to God's plan, not ours. Well, second, he says, we also run according to His purpose. And he says in verse 2, he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Why are we running? Why are we in this race? Who are we looking at? Listen, when you're running, guys, you cannot look at your feet. You cannot look over to the right or left. You look toward the finish line. You look toward where you're going. 
You look to Jesus. He says looking to Jesus. That word looking is a present active verb. You know what that means? It's an action word. That means you do not get into the Christian faith and become passive. Oh, no. Is passivity a problem with us men in the faith? Absolutely it is. We expect God to move us to do stuff. He says, no, I brought you in to deploy you. Looking to Jesus. We have to look ahead. It says Jesus is our founder and perfecter. That word there is kind of like a pioneer. Listen to what Philippians 2 says. This is Paul talking. Paul understood this real quick. Just go through a quick couple of verses. Philippians 2. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and I rejoice with you. He's holding fast to the word of life. His eyes are on Jesus, the perfecter and author of his faith. In Philippians 3, over in the next chapter, this is what he says in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Jesus made me His own. That's why we're in the race. Jesus made us His. That's why we're running. And that's why we should look at Him. He says, and he goes on to say, brothers, I do not consider what I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. We're looking to Jesus. We're looking actively. We're giving it at all. You know why? My friend Jeff Wells, pastor in Texas, was a marathoner finished second to Bill Rogers, one of the greatest marathoners of all time, about two seconds in the Boston Marathon. Two seconds in a marathon is nothing. It's like a tenth of a second in a hundred. It's like fast, just really quick. Jeff said this, he said, I knew I'd lost the race when I could see the finish line and I knew I still had too much left to give. Did you get that? Mm-hmm. Do you understand that? What he's saying is he didn't give it all as he was going through. And he knew he had too much left to give when he saw the end. And he said, that's why I lost that race. Well, he says, he calls us to run this race according to God's plan, his plan, to his purpose, and finally his pattern. Verse 3, he says, consider him. That word consider means think through thoroughly. Jesus is the source of and the supreme example of our faith. And that's what he's saying here. We've got to consider him. What did he endure from sinners? Well, he endured suffering. He endured death. But why did he endure it? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Christ. Remember Him, Timothy. You're going through a tough time. Remember what He went through. Why? Why? Uh, over in 2 Timothy 2.8. I'm closing with this. Remember Christ, Jesus Christ. 
risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not changed, or but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Over in Colossians 1, you can jot this down to 15 through 23. It's almost as if the same writer who wrote Hebrews wrote Colossians, but he didn't. Paul wrote Colossians. That's why some people think he wrote Hebrews. Because in Colossians 1, it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. Just go read that sometime. Meditate on that. Look to Jesus' pattern. It talks about him. He's our model for running our race of faith. So as we close today, let me get you to think about these three questions. What's weighing me down personally in my life? Not Chuck's life, not Aaron's life, my life. What's weighing me down? Where am I looking right now? Am I looking at Jesus? Am I looking at the end of the race? I know a guy right now, John Maisel, who's close to the end of his race. He's about to finish. He's battling a chronic disease that he's got maybe a year left in his life. He's down to 40% lung capacity. He was one of the greatest evangelists I personally have known. He's done more work over in Russia than probably anybody else, including Brother Andrew, who was huge over there. And you know what? Every time I talk to him, keep your eyes on Jesus, Doug. Keep your eye. He is being more bold. He's writing more now, trying to get more out there. He is sprinting toward the finish line. He's not giving up just because he's dying. Where am I looking? And why am I running? Am I all in? Am I all in? Because there's still people out there that need to hear about Jesus. Brad, will you close our time in prayer?